I'm Luke Simmons. And I'm Seth Trout. Welcome to King Culture. All right, Seth, we're back. And uh, welcome to King Culture, everybody. It's uh, great to have you with us. And um, today we are talking about Revelation, the end times, eschatology, all that sort of stuff. We're on the front end of this series for the fall on the book of Revelation. So, Seth, I'm, I'm excited about this series, and I'm excited about this conversation. I am, too. We've done a handful of these on the King Culture podcast before. We'll link to those in the show notes. My, one of my favorite previous episodes was called Get the Hell Off Earth. <laughs> and so if you're offended by that statement or want to learn more about it, go ahead and check that out. We'll link to some of those end timesy ones. We have one on Mark of the Beast as well. So if you're just joining us, go ahead and check that out. This is not a new thing for us. But yeah, actually, while you were on sabbatical, we, we replayed Mark of the Beast. So if people have been listening lately, maybe they reheard that one. That was kind of in the midst of all the hysteria around uh, the vaccine. You know, at the time, the vaccine was still coming for COVID. And uh, people were asking about, is that the Mark of the Beast? So, we yeah, we talked about that. Short it feels like ages ago. Yeah, short answer, no. Long answer, check out the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so what I want to do really in this conversation, Seth, is is just ask you a bunch of questions. I'll chime in along the way, but really trying to help people um, understand where we're coming from, What are what's some of the terrain here, right? One of the things I realize when we come to a book like Revelation is some people have studied it like a lot. Other people are like, eh, I don't know, that all just seems pretty weird. Part of my heart really is to try to re you know, try, try to uh, give a vision for the people who go, ah, I don't know, like to go, no, let's give them a vision for what this is about. Maybe to help the folks who've been deep into it have some things reframed, but it's just a really interesting conversation when some people have gone, you know, way down uh, the rabbit hole of Revelation <laughs> and other people have not. And so uh, some of this, I thought we could just give a little bit of the lay of the land. Um, and so um, let's talk first about the book of Revelation. Part of what makes Revelation unique is that it's three different kinds of literature. Tell us about that. Yeah, so we see these three kinds of literature identified in Revelation chapter 1. First, uh, in the very first sentence, this is a revelation of, of Jesus Christ. And so that word revelation is the word apocalypsis, which means apocalypse. And apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature is a weird genre for us to try to interpret, especially it's weird for us to try to interpret it when we're distant from the event that's being referred to. Like, for example, uh, those folks who were around when the Berlin Wall fell, they're, they're, some of the headlines were like, when the Berlin Wall fell, it shook the world. Right. And if you try to, like, is that true or is that false? Is that literal? Is that not literal? Well, it literally affected the whole world, but it didn't literally shake the whole world. It did shake up the political infrastructure of the world, but it didn't physically shake the whole world. But when the yeah, was fell, there some tribe in Central America somewhere that didn't end up affected by it at all? Well, sure. Yeah, but generally speaking, like that's a true statement yeah. and a really helpful image. But it's kind of like literally there was some rumbling when the wall fell, but more literally it was the ripple effects of not the wall itself, but the political thing the wall represented. So that's apocalyptic literature. Uh, and it, it's using images, it's using pictures, it's trying to grip your imagination. To help you see some things from a perspective you might not see yeah, it. But if you're unfamiliar with the USSR and how significant the that organization was over and against even the United States or other democratic institutions, you won't really understand when it fell, it shook the world. Like, well, how big was that wall? That wall must have been right. 90 miles high if it shook the whole world, sure. you know, and you're trying to like get overly. So that's apocalyptic. It's saying true things with image-based uh, dramatic functions. Okay. And then the second kind is prophetic. Yeah, it's prophecy. It's a prophecy. And so we tend to think of prophecy as prediction, but I think it's more helpful to think of prophecies as promises. They're based on God's character who's in control of the future. It's not like someone's kind of looking through a, a telescope and seeing the future. It's God saying, here's the future I'm going to bring about. And in light of that future, you're all guilty and liable. And so prophets are covenant litigators their main function is to point out how the people of God are being not faithful to what they're, uh, the covenant they're called to. Uh, and they often do that in light of showing them the future and saying, this is what you signed up to be a part of, and look at what you're doing with yourself. So it's prophets are future-oriented, present uh, critics. That's a prophetic Yeah, they're trying to get you to live into the reality of God's kingdom now. Yeah, the whole goal is to mo motivate and mobilize faithfulness. Yeah, sometimes, uh, I, I think this is actually an important distinction, because sometimes people will talk about having prophetic gifts, and they mean different things, right? To some people, having a prophetic gift might mean, 
I tend to have dreams and I tend to be given words of knowledge and I tend to have these spiritual insights that God provides that then have to be tested, but I, you know, I'm in tune with what God's doing there. That could be a kind of prophetic gift. Another prophetic gift is the person who's going to always call for reform, always call to repent, always call to say, hey, let's live in line with the kingdom that we're supposed to be part of. So sometimes you hear it used both ways. And really in the book of Revelation, the prophecy is sort of doing both. Yes, in, in that sense, I would say that uh, it's most important for us to understand the prophetic work in Revelation, not as to inspire predictives, but to inspire uh, preparation. Okay. Uh, we're, we're, it's mobilizing and motivating preparedness, which is a, a, a measure of holiness. It's, yeah. it's fidelity, it's connection. So it's more about preparing yourself, uh, preparing uh, the church, uh, for things that are happening and that will always happen and that will that will come in the future. It's not unlike speaking to a child in your home and saying, like, one day uh, you will have to uh, go out and be on your own. And so you kind of give, like, snippets of independence along the way that increase in scope and span, but at some point there's moving out day. Just like nowadays the church is facing persecution and facing trials and tribulations, and they're very real, uh, but I think Revelation's leading towards... Uh, an escalation in in the uh, the final look of those things. Great. We'll, we'll talk about that more here in a little bit. So we've got apocalyptic, we, Revelation is prophecy. What's the third kind of literature? The third one is that it's, it's a letter. It's written to a people. Uh, it's written to real people in a real place that when John is writing the book of Revelation, he's not writing it in such a way, hoping that at some point in the future, Maybe 1,860 years later, someone will come along and unlock the code, and finally people understand what he's writing. John really understands what he's writing, and the people he's writing it to really understand what he's writing, and they're going to receive this letter and be inspired to cling to Christ as things are difficult in the current situation that they are in. And so there's a real audience. Uh, it, I think it's said before that's helpful is that Revelation was written for us but not to us. Sort of like you overhear a conversation in the other room that affects you, but you're not in the conversation. Yeah. Uh, that this was a real letter written to real people. And the best chance we have at understanding it is to ask, how would the first readers understand this? Hmm. Uh, and if our interpretation or application of the book is substantively different than how the first readers of it would have understood it, then we're in real danger as far as importing or inserting our own a cultural or historical moment into the book rather than seeing it being written to real people in real place in real time. And we now benefit from that, but it's, uh, it's not to us. It is for us. Yeah. So one of the dangers you just said of us coming to the book of revelation is that we might import our own situation too heavily into the book of revelation. What are some other dangers you would see for us as we read it, as we study it, as we go through this? So I coming in revelation, I'm, frankly nervous, mostly because a lot of my past experience of churches trying to interpret Revelation is something that I'm frankly embarrassed or ashamed of. It is deeply anxious, speculative, uh, calculator-out, date-setting stuff that does not lead to increased love of neighbor and fidelity to Christ. It leads to people doing wacky stuff. At my previous church, uh, there is this thing going on, a, a what I would call a false teacher by the name of John Hagee had this four blood moons come out and it was all about how the end is coming and the blue moons are going to be this color and there's going to be four of them. And, and so we had two people at the church have like psychotic breaks. Mm. Uh, they divested from all their retirement and didn't do anything good with it, but they just went around kind of with losing their minds. Like it ended up being like enabling this mm. hyper wackiness and he's coming and then he didn't show up. Yeah. And it's like the end of being the type of people that in the show, the Parks and Rec makes fun of all the time. There's those folks who like rent the park for the end of the world thing every year. <laughs> right. And one time they show up for the end of the world and like it, 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 the park was double booked and there's a birthday party. He's like, oh, I guess let me check my calculations. Oh yeah. The world's ending tomorrow. Never mind. <laughs> yeah. and, and so, so that, that'd be the extreme of it. And obviously people can go there. I mean, these are like, these weren't people in a cult. These were people at a you know good faithful church who, can get swept up in that. So I don't want to totally minimize that. On the other hand, most people aren't going to go there, especially people who are new to newer to all this. So, so what are some of the dangers you feel like th those folks would be more likely to face? Yeah. Like even when I was in college, there was a, some 
really financially well-off Christians who were buying billboards in California, Arizona, talking like they had done the math and the date was coming. And I remember mm. Dr. Wayne Grudem being on Fox News saying like, hey, you can't actually do the dates like that. You know, but it was like <laughs> significant yeah. enough. So it, it is a, and Christians look really stupid. Mm. And Christians ought to be willing to look foolishness for the gospel. But being just stupid is not good for our brand. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so yeah. there is like a f- problem with witness that, Whenever you hear non-Christians talk about like uh, Jesus coming back in the end times, they're mostly doing it to mock kind of the wacky versions of things. You even have like, I, so I grew up uh, kind of having this recurring panicky thing about how I was going to miss the rapture. You know, if like I was at Blockbuster with my dad and he turned the corner too fast and I turned the corner and he wasn't there. I was like, I missed the rapture. I guess my faith wasn't real enough. And there's yeah. this kind of insecurity thing. Uh, I heard a story this past week of a pastor whose parents put their dogs down so the dogs wouldn't go through a tribulation. You know, like it, like, wow. and these are like, these are wounds to children that when we have this kind of false teaching or even just presumptive teaching that does damage to people's ability to even trust Christ when you tell them, like, the Bible's clear, he's coming back this time. So there's like this presumptiveness, like, that we, we all seem to forget. Matthew twenty four thirty six that no one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels, not even the son, only the father. Yeah. Knows. Well, and it's interesting that it, that Revelation is really written to try to strengthen you and make you courageous and make you faithful, but it can have the opposite effect on some people to make them more anxious, more fearful, more worried about everything that could come against them. Um, you know, I'd say on the other side, there's a different issue, which is, we'll get into this later, but there's... Uh, versions of Christian end time stuff that I would say is like prematurely optimistic. Hmm. Now, Christians are optimistic because Christ is reigning. And he'll come back and make all things new. But there's also like a, a batch, you know, the post millennialists who are especially developed by like Jonathan Edwards that would say things will just increasingly get better. The reign of Christ will spread. Uh, the influence of the gospel will spread. And it's kind of, it'll, it's a messy graph, but it's generally up into the right. And we, sh- and, and that kind of over-optimism leads to really unnecessary disappointment and this sense of, can you believe what's happening yeah. in the world today? Mm. And I think when you read the Bible well, you're like, oh, yeah, I can, and I'm disappointed, but I'm not surprised. But if you add surprise to disappointment, it can be disorienting, and you're going, everything I was expecting, like we're hope-shaped people. Uh, we like to be able to know what's happening and having our hope appropriately fixed and having our sense of the future appropriately um, measured is part of how we maintain sobriety and our capacity to just go on functioning as, as normal people. Yeah. So hyper-optimism, a hyper-negativity, like there can be like real psychological, spiritual implications on people if they, if they miss out on what the book is doing. So in a moment, I want to come to some definitions and provide a bit of a, you know, glossary of <laughs> a bunch of terms we've already used, post-millennial and rapture and things like that that people go, ah, what, what does that stuff even mean? So I want to come to that in just a moment. Before we do, Seth, I want to share with you, here, here's the definition, not even the definition, here's the description of what I told the RC leaders. We did a special training for the folks that lead small groups, and and he, I said, hey, it, this isn't just about what Revelation is is meaning, that's very important, but it's also about what, what Revelation is trying to do. What is John by the Spirit trying to accomplish in these churches that he's writing these letters to. And so I want to share with you what I said it's trying to do, and I'd love to have you reflect on on the this part. So it's, it's really a three-part uh, thing. So Revelation is trying to free God's people from the intoxicating spells of the world and give us God's perspective on reality so that we can live faithfully as pink spoon people. So I'll read that again. Revelation is trying to, one, free God's people from the intoxicating spells of the world, and two, give us God's perspective on reality so that, three, we can live faithfully as pink spoon people. Um, re- reflect on that. How is, how is Revelation trying to free us from the intoxicating spells of the world? Yeah, I think intoxicating is a great word. I think another great word is seductive. Mm. Don't get seduced. I think that on that first part of your definition there, uh, there's this temptation that some Christians have that they believe that they are non-seducible. I'm so committed to Christ, I can't be seduced. Um, and part of what Revelation is saying is, no, you you are seducible. And until you have enough humility to admit you're seducible, you won't be on the lookout. Like the the worldly powers, the world system, the powers of this world are portrayed as this harlot, prostitute, whore, different translations use, um, that she is coming for you to take your money. Mm. And 
you will be tempted to think she likes you and wants what's best for you, but she's interested in your money. She's not interested in your well-being. And in the name of economic prosperity, she will seduce you. And I think that we need to understand that the slow uh, frog in the kettle compromise is something we are all absolutely capable of. Mm. We cannot presume on our faithfulness. We cannot presume on our faith. We cannot presume on our steadfastness that no matter how resolved we feel at any given moment, we are seducible, period. Mm. And so spells is another word of that. Like the sense, you know, she's, it's, we see this in the book of Proverbs as well, that she's carefully picking the linens and, and Lady Folly is uh, lighting the candles and spraying her perfume. And so there's like this five sensory come on over this way thing going on. And Lady Folly, the, the woman Babylon, uh, Lady Roma, she is, she's a prostitute and she's coming after us. Yeah. And so we have to see ourselves as seducible. And part of the reason we can be freed from that is to know that's what's happening and to know that that's normal. There's no shame in being seducible, but there is shame in being seduced. Yeah. So when you talked earlier about how Revelation's not as much about preparing, but about, or I'm sorry, not as much about predicting, but about preparing, that's part of what we're saying is like, hey, we're actually liable to be seduced now. And God's calling us to be faithful now so that we're not seduced now, not just someday in the future when it gets really bad, but that actually we'd, we'd practice that kind of faithfulness now. And actually, the longer you go not being seduced, the more difficult it is to not be seduced, which I think is a bit of a misnomer. Some people think the longer you go about not being seduced, the stronger you get at not being seduced. Hmm. But C.S. Lewis talks about temptation is more like standing up in a hurricane, that the longer you stand, the harder the wind blows. Uh, yeah. And so actually the person who stood the longest knows how hard the wind blows the most. That if you lay down in the first five minutes when the wind's 20 miles an hour, you're like, oh, that wind is really hard. And someone goes on standing for a long time. Now the wind's 120 miles an hour. And the person laying down says like, maybe the wind blew harder at me. That's why I lay down for it faster. But in reality, <laughs> right. the longer you stay standing in hurricane, the sure. harder it blows. And so I think it's similarly true as we face the seduction of the world is that the longer you go on not being seduced, the more... Yeah. tempting it becomes. So Revelation is trying to free us from that seduction of the world. Also, it's it's trying to give us God's perspective on reality. Talk about that. Yeah, this is the apocalypsis. You know, uh, Mike Goheen talked about how a Revelation is the future's perspective on the present and heaven's perspective on earth. And I, I like that a lot, that it's so difficult to discern what's happening in the world right now, especially in the age of social media, media, mainstream media, non-mainstream media, whatever you want to call it, what's happening in the world. And obviously in the specifics, there's a lot that's debatable and difficult to sort through. But what's certainly going on in the world, the most important things that are going on in the world are the battle between heaven and hell, um, between dark and light, between good and evil, that light is certainly winning and is certainly breaking through. But the battle in every human heart and in the heart that operates among every community is the main thing that's going on. So there are a lot of things going on, but Revelation is telling us God's perspective on the main thing that's going on, which is the battle for God to take over the hearts of his people. Hmm. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I love throughout the book is, um, you know, the number seven is significant. It seems to be this number that represents completion. And one of the things that is said seven times and is said at the beginning and the end of the book is this description of God as as the Alpha and the Omega, the Almighty, right? So part of what it's trying to do is to say, hey, in this world of like beginning and end, uh, it, where everything comes to an end and everything you know is weak, God doesn't come to an end, and God is strong. He's Almighty. Yeah, He's been there. He's at the beginning. He's there at the end. It's not sort of like the reason you want a mentor. You want someone who's been there before. Yeah. And you have the God who's outside of time, who's like, hey, I've been there. Yeah. And. It's interesting talking to, like, asking parenting advice from someone who's currently a grandparent. Yeah. Like, their perspective on the little things is they're, like, they're like kind of a little bit don't sweat it. I think sometimes they don't remember. <laughs> yeah, they don't sweat it because they don't remember. But, they but have, also, they do have perspective. They have perspective. They have the yeah. big picture. They know what's most important. They know sure. what's ultimate. Uh, things that feel really important when you have a one-year-old and a three-year-old, when those same kids are 11 and 13 or 21 and 23 or yeah. 41 and 43, those the things that are really important stand out more clearly and they've been there and they understand that. And so God is sort of like that. He's been in the future. He knows what the biggest deal deals are. He's not uninterested in the small things, mm -hmm. but he's also able to rank them with great sobriety. 
Yeah. So, so coming back again to what Revelation is trying to do, it's trying to free us from the intoxicating or seductive spells of the world, trying to give us God's perspective on reality with a so that, right? This is what it's trying to do is actually shape us to live faithfully as God's pink spoon people. And that's the analogy. We got it from somewhere. I don't know. We've used it for so long. There's t-shirts around. I think it comes from Amy Sherman's book uh, okay. about work. Oh, okay. Kingdom Calling. Kingdom that could calling, be. Yeah. That makes sense. And uh, yeah, it's basically the idea that when you go to Baskin Robbins, you get a taste of the real ice cream in a pink spoon. And in the same way, we're supposed to be giving people a taste of the future kingdom of God through the way we live and the way we love and the way we uh, embody the gospel in the world. So how, how is Revelation or, or why is Revelation trying to do that in particular? I like the language of pink spoon because it in, it immediately does two things. One, it's a real taste, and two, it's still disappointing. It's, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, not, it's not all the way satisfying. Like yeah. you're still, look, it makes you, it's good enough that it makes you look forward to something better, but it's by no means scratching all your itches. And so the church is the people of God, and they really have work of the Holy Spirit and the operations of God's grace in their lives, but they are still constrained by sin and largely disappointing. And, and so there's like this, the best parts of the church ought to make someone long for the kingdom of God uh, when it will come in power eventually. So I like the pink spoon thing because it does both those things. Um, I think that us being changed and doing our best to submit to and obey fully under the reign of God in the kingdom is the main way we do that. Uh, but even theologian Richard Bauckham, who wrote a great book on the theology of Revelation, it's short, but it's very dense. If anybody wants to give it a rip on that book, I'd highly recommend it. But he argues that the centerpiece of the book of Revelation is actually Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, which is all about the witness of the church. Mm. And how the church's faithfulness has everything to do with her witness. That will we tell people that Christ is risen and Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead? Will we bear witness in word by preaching the gospel? Will we bear witness in actions by walking in holiness? And will we bear witness communally by loving one another as Christ told us to love one another? And I think the question of our witness, our faithfulness to witness, kind of points to how like, you have those three parts in your definition to uh, free us from the spells, to uh, help us see God's perspective. And then like the main function is that we are to be faithful as to do God's people. I, w- I would even argue this that if you took the book of Revelation out of the Bible, which I'm not recommending, there's <laughs> good vir- clarity. There's virtually nothing that you would miss that's not in the rest of the, of the books. Hmm. Eugene Pearson writes about that, about how there are more allusions to other books, more references to other books than any other book in the Bible, um, hundreds and hundreds of them in the book of Revelation. And it's a really summary work. It's a summing up that the church is called to be faithfulness, to bear witness to the gospel, to not be seduced by the world and prepare for Christ's second coming. All of that is there in the rest of the New Testament. And Revelation is just doing it in a unique way, uh, specifically doing the uh, the work of symbolic referencing the apocalyptic prophetic that's meant to help our hearts uh, move us differently. So it's not just pure letter like the other ones. It's not just pure prose like the Gospels, but it's uh, the symbolic work of it is the distinct character of which it's new. So I, I want to have one more question before we get into some definitions of a lot of these terms. Um, and that question is, it seems like, Seth, what we're saying is uh, a lot of what Revelation is describing is just normal life in the church age. Um, but at some point, there's this intensification. At some point, there's this acceleration. At some point, it seems in the book like it moves from, here's what's just happening all the time, in the church at Sardis, or the church at Philadelphia, or the church at Ephesus, or the church in wherever, and it starts to move into, like, the future, and the quote-unquote end times, right? We've talked on this podcast before about how, um, you know, John assumes as he writes this, we're in the end times. As soon as Christ rises from the dead, it's the beginning of the new age, right? Like, everyone in, in the New Testament's assuming we're in the last days. But we also realize, like, as we read the book of Revelation, there's some parts of this that are like, yeah, this is just like our normal experience right now, but then there's like a, the stuff that's still going to happen. How do we know as we're reading the book, oh, we just bumped into that next thing? Yeah, so this is probably a definition we should have said at the very beginning, but eschatology means, comes from the Greek word eschaton, which means last or the end. So this eschatology is a branch of theology, which is due to the studying of the, the end times. So I would say there's a lot of different like wholesale uh, ways that people make sense of these things, and overwhelmingly they all agree with each other. 
and that there was a partial kicking off, something happened at the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus that began a new age, a new season, a new genre of world history. And there will be a culmination in which Christ returns and makes all things new. And so uh, that's in the creeds. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. That's the, the apostles and the uh, Nicene Creed. Uh, and Christ's resurrection. You know, so those are the, the things that are bound together in the creeds. But how you decide whether this text is about that or this text is about that uh, is frankly just difficult and not always clear. Okay. So just so we know, like that at some point in the book of Revelation, it begins to make a turn where it feels like, ah, oh, this is more talking about the stuff to come than what's now, but it also is kind of about the thing that's to come now. And yeah. I, I remember going through a class on Revelation where it talked about, you know, this cyclical dynamic of like that, you know, each each different part is kind of describing this thing that is always happening, but just getting more intense. Yeah, I think that like there are texts in the Psalms, texts in Isaiah, texts in Ezekiel, texts in Daniel, texts in Revelation, that all of them have this, there's a sense in which this was fulfilled at the resurrection of Christ and the sending of the Spirit, and there's a sense in which this will be fully uh, revealed at the end. And this is where I think theologians use these two terms that are that are really uh, uh, wedding terms. You have inauguration and consummation, Yeah, that the kingdom of God is already and it's not yet, that it's here and that it's not here. And you see that uh, all through Paul, and you see that all through the Gospels, and you see that in the book of Revelation, that's the end and it's not the end, and that we're in this overlap of the ages, that there is real darkness and there's real light coexisting. And so most of the time, some of those texts, you can't totally tell is it this one or that one. There's a clear sense in which it's that half fulfilled or partially fulfilled and another sense in which it's not fully fulfilled. So you think about like even resurrection, there's a sense in which like people's hearts are made new, they lose their heart of stone and they're given their heart of flesh and they're resurrected newness of life. That's what we see when you baptize them. And there's a different sense in which their bodies will still decay and they will rise again in the last. And so are, do, are people walking in newness of life right now or are they walking in newness of life when Christ comes back and makes all things new? Well, yes, right. Both of those senses are true. And so trying to be overly clear on this is that, this is that, is actually probably unhelpful. Okay. All right. Well, I want to move into, it'll be almost a, a rap, you know, rapid fire uh, lightning round sort of thing where if you could just give us some basic understanding of some words. And then I want to come back after we run through it and ask you questions about how some of it developed throughout the history of the church and where we are on some of those things, how we understand it, but just so people understand. So you, you just talked for a moment about eschatology. Um, talk about, so give us a, again, I don't expect you've wordsmith definitions on this stuff. So just riff for a little bit. I'm glad you don't expect that because <laughs> I have not. Yeah. But tell us, uh, what is the second coming of Christ? Or sometimes it's called the parousia. What, what's the second coming of Christ? Second coming of Christ is when Christ comes in power as conquering king to overthrow his enemies once and for all, that the dead are raised, the final judgment happens, and Christ ushers in the wedding of heaven and earth. And as a bride adorned for heaven, heaven descends, and the final state is entered into by the whole of the world. And to be obvious, it's the second coming because... The first coming happened in the uterus of Mary. Okay. So Christmas is uh, the incarnation. Yes. That's the first coming. All right. So now we get into questions about the millennium. So what is, uh, just in general, before we get into the different options here, what is the millennium? So the millennium means thousand years, millennium. And when people are debating what they mean by the millennium, uh, they're talking about in Revelation chapter 20, there's a description of a thousand years. So people from all different theological perspectives don't necessarily hold that as literally a thousand years, but they mostly hold it as literally a very long time. So uh, in Revelation 20, when Christ will reign for a thousand years, that's what he's getting at. And uh, the early interpretations of that are varied, um, but then there's how people think about that time and what happens before it, what happens during it, what happens after it is a yeah. huge case for debate. Well, that's what I want to ask about next. So there's there's a number of different options in terms of ways people understand or interpret that thousand years, that millennium. So um, one is historic premillennial, 
historic premillennialism. What is historic premillennialism? So there's two parts of that definition, historic, which means old. And that's the perspective of the early church fathers. That's where they get the term historic or classic premillennialism. Um, Irenaeus, who's discipled by Polycarp, who's discipled by John, who wrote Revelation, had a perspective that Christ will come back and then there will be a very long thousand-year reign of Christ from Jerusalem. Like a, like literally, he'll be back, he'll be the king in Jerusalem on this planet for a thousand years. Yes, okay. and so that's pre-millennialism. So before um, the millennium, there will be a return of Christ, then there will be millennium, and then the final state will be ushered in. So, okay, so, so that's... That's one. That's historic. That's historic it's premillennialism. Old, yep. And it's premillennial because Christ comes back before the millennium. Okay. And then uh, what is amillennialism? Amillennialism sees the millennium as much less literal, much less um, obvious. So, even so, to, just to be clear, premillennialists don't always think it's literally a thousand years. A lot of them think it's a thousand years is biblical for a very long time. Okay. Or, or a thousand means a lot. You know, the the Lord owns a cattle on a thousand hills. A day with the Lord's like a thousand years, and so it just means a whole lot. And so Christ will reign from Jerusalem for a very long time. I don't think a lot of historic primo folks don't think it's literal, literally one thousand years. They just think it's but, literally. But it is that He's ruling from Earth. Yeah, it is a literal in an earthly kingdom. It is a literal physical earthly kingdom. Yeah. on the earth. It, heavenly kingdom on earth. Yeah. Yeah. It's just not necessarily literally exactly okay. a thousand years. But then amillennial would say is, that well, that thousand years in Revelation 20 is referencing the church age that there is since the resurrection of Christ, Christ is reigning spiritually over the earth and the saints who have died are reigning with him in the heavenly places right now. That's kind of what the book of Hebrews talks about. Even now we reign with him that there uh, is not going to be a future literal th- long time on earth that Christ is reigning from Jerusalem, but it's an ongoing situation. That view was is a dominant view in the church historically, especially from the 300s, um, but then from really St. Augustine on in his book, The City of God, teaches an amillennial view, and it's a dominant view for a very, very, very long time. And okay. okay, and then uh, next one is post-millennial. So what's post-millennialism? Post-millennialism would be probably the most minority view, it's decidedly optimistic. It's basically the same as amillennial, except for way more optimistic. Amillennialists kind of think that the default mode of the church is to be generally persecuted and generally powerless and generally um, ineffective, except for through conversions and spiritual means. The postmillennial sees uh, kind of an up and to the right trajectory. Things will generally get better. Christ's reign will spread. People will come to faith. It's a it's a conquista dore. Uh, uh, victory-oriented perspective on how the church will relate to the secular world. Okay, so um, the way I've understood this, and you can, you know, help me have a better understanding if I don't, is on those terms, premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial, it's specifically talking about when is the return of Christ. Premillennial, he's coming before this earthly reign. Amillennial, um, he is reigning now. There, there's no specific return as it relates to his reigning because he's already reigning from heaven now. Postmillennial is the church is going to actually usher in this reign of Christ on the earth, and Jesus will return at the end of it. Yeah. More or yeah. less. Yeah, so the amillennial looks to a future return of Christ, um, but it's they're way more on the nobody knows a day or the hour yeah. type of stuff. Yeah, amillennials definitely think Jesus is coming back. <laughs> yeah. But that um but and, the the specific reference to Jesus reigning for a thousand years that that's already happening. Yeah. So uh functionally speaking, the difference between the amillennial and the postmillennial is the amillennial is more pessimistic, the postmillennial is more optimistic. But yes, the postmillennial person says that after this long period of the of Christ reigning through the church, then he will come return physically and make all things new. So right. after the millennium. All right. So now there's a fourth category, which is dispensational premillennialism. A dispensational premillennialism. The easiest way to say this is it's the Left Behind series. Um, so and I and I went kind of in that order because it seems to me like that's sort of the historic order. Yeah, that's in terms really of fair. as things developed. But tell us more about dispensational. Yeah, dispensationalism was developed by a guy named Darby. Uh, then propagated by a guy named Schofield in the mid to late 1800s. It was really popularized, especially through the Americas. Uh, And their unique development over and against the other views is they hold that there's two peoples of God. 
uh, at least in the classic form of it, that God has a plan for Israel and he has a plan for the Gentiles. And they interpret the prophecies and the promises in the Old Testament and in the book of Revelation as having two distinct reference points. Some of these are for these people, some of these for those people. Um, Some people get in because they're Jews and God chose Abraham and they're just chosen. Some people get in because through the blood of Christ people can be grafted in. Uh, Dispensationalist folk emphasis on uh, that secret rapture, which is what I mean by the Left Behind series. Uh, and the more recent Nick Cage movie. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> oh, did he do a Left Behind? He did a Left Behind, yeah. Oh, wow. He's There's done a, everything. Yeah. The guy, guy's got range, as they say. <laughs> uh, but this idea that all of a sudden the Christians will be gone and their dental implants will be left behind with their clothes, and people are like, what happened? And then uh, that's kind of the secret rapture. So all, all the Christians believe in some form of a rapture, that there will be like a, a moment where Christ comes back and, the church meets him in the air and and with the only dispensation we'll see is a secret rapture. Okay. So, and, and so we'll talk more about that here in a moment. So tell us the, um, you've alluded to it already, but give us, because you've just been reading some of the historical developments of these different views. How do they come about? Give us just the, you know, synopsis of, of how that transpired. You, it, you talked already about the original folks who were discipled by John and so on were historic premillennial from there. I mean, I just hear that and go, well, that probably ought to settle the case. Like, why is why did anything else emerge? I mean, no other teachings about other stuff emerged. Why that? Yeah, there are a lot of arguments between the various systems. But frankly, for me, the most compelling thing is, especially in a book that's so loaded with this prophetic imagery, this apocalyptic symbolism, the earliest readers, to me, feel like should be the our best guides in interpretation. Uh, you know, not engineers with spreadsheets in the 1800s, but the contemporaries, the students, the disciples. So like Justin the Martyr, or Justin who got martyred and then was named Justin the Martyr or Justin Martyr, in one of his works called Dial with Trifo, he writes this, I and others who are right-minded Christians on all points are assured that there will be a resurrection of the dead in a thousand years in Jerusalem. So that's like the historic pre-mill position. Irenaeus writes similarly. They're writing in the second century. So fresh fresh in the hundreds. Okay. They're writing this stuff. So then, so then what, so here's, this is going to be my, my revisionist history of, uh, (laughs) of these things is over the next couple hundred years, some of these premillennialists start to get pretty wacky and they get into like predicting and separating themselves. So, so hold on. When you say revisionist history, does this mean we shouldn't trust you or what do you mean by that? I mean, I'm selectively telling things to make the, this narrative more, clean okay so, so, sure like so, all history it's hard to summarize quickly yeah i'm gonna summarize it so i'm not changing history i'm just selectively telling it so, okay <laughs> so so the the premillennials were the dominant view for hundreds of years and then you have this kind of nervousness about uh, some of them kind of getting weird uh there's nervousness about why are we taking this thousand years so literally we need to like this is a this is prophetic imagery a thousand clearly means a long time why do you keep calling yourselves like there's a literal millennium and you have, so Augustine's teacher who discipled him and came to faith was trying to help writing commentaries in the book of Revelation wrote this on millennial view, which is like, no revelation's talking about um, what's always happening. So the early church very much read revelation with a, with a, it's a letter, but with a futurist orientation, then they're saying, no, this isn't what's just happening in the future. This is what's always happening. That there's always Antichrist, like in First John, it says, "Indeed, many antichrists have come." Right. So John himself has taught us that there are antichrists all the time—people who are vying for our affection, vying for our attention. That there's always like people are dying and being judged all the time. Like people are um, being led astray by the powers of the world all the time. This is not some special feature thing. This is an all the time thing. And so uh, Augustine's teacher, and then Augustine eventually uh, propagated this view, and it became the dominant accepted view um, all the way through even the Reformation. So the Reformers, you have Luther and Calvin, who are like ripping off and throwing away a lot of the Roman Catholic Church. But one of the things that they think the Roman Catholic Church was actually right on was eschatology, was end times. Hmm. And so they toss out Mary, they toss out the seven sacraments, they toss out uh, the the sacraments as atonement, they toss out confession. They t- and, but when Calvin and Luther read the stuff, they go like, 
basically, I think this is one of the things the church is right on. They're right on the resurrection. They're right on the second coming. Basically, everything else they're wrong on. But okay. that's one of the things that Calvin and Luther and the Reformers thought. Calvin even saw Revelation as generally opaque. He wrote commentaries on uh, nearly every single book of the Bible. One of the ones he didn't write on was the book of Revelation. Yeah. Um, because it was partially because he didn't have a better interpretation to offer than was already out there. Mm. Okay. And partially because he was kind of not totally clear on what it meant. <laughs> sure. You know? So, so if of, you don't totally understand Revelation, you're in good company. Yeah, yeah. I have, I have a John Calvin wrote like three whole books on the Book of Job, which is also not clear. <laughs> and he's like, but Revelation's even harder than that. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so that amillennial view dominates. And then what happens, uh, like in the in the Americas in particular, with the Great Awakening. And the real like advent of industrialism and the taking off of economic uh, situations is uh, this positive view called postmillennialism that developed with Jonathan Edwards and was really normalized throughout the Americas in a variety of places that saw the church as incredibly powerful, thought these other systems were way too negative, read about the victory of God, the promises of God, the power of the Spirit, and were like, you're all a bunch of bummers. Well, and they experienced great awakenings. Yeah, yeah. When you experience revival, you might go, man, there was the God's great awakening, to, and then there something. was the second great awakening, right. and they're like, holy smokes, God's doing something crazy here. Yeah, all this, the world's getting worse. Stuff is sure. a bunch of mumbo jumbo. Look at the poverty rates. Look at the rates of infection. Look at our hygiene. Look at our churches. Look, and they're they're like America. Don't look at our slavery. But. Don't look at our slavery. <laughs> yeah, look at how some people are thriving. Right. You know, you know yeah, how, sure. Yeah, that's kind of the the vibe of it. Look at how the economy in America is exploding. Look at how the you know this a divine right to land, you know, look at, we're civilizing all these people, you know, and yeah. that's what, how they would say it. Not necessarily, I would say it just to be clear, but there's that perspective. And that was dominant for a long time. Then the civil war happens and like stuff's really bad. And then the great war happens and stuff's really bad. And world war two happens. Stuff's really bad. And after about 150 years of pure American optimism, you kind of have, um, maybe not. And so now that's ex- now probably postmillennialism is the most minority view mm-hmm. held throughout the world. There are some folks who still hold to it uh, for various reasons, uh, but that's kind of the life and death of yeah postmillennialism. World War II is generally the nail in the coffin as far as like historical acceptability, largely because um, alongside the promises of God and the power of the Spirit that you see at work in the New Testament you always have this promise of persecution and suffering and uh, people abandoning the faith. And, and so the New Testament's really balanced on your optimism and negativity. Uh, then uh, dispensation develops. Um, there's a book by Richard Lovelace called Dynamics of Spiritual Life. He argues that dispensation was actually developed as an apologetic for Southern slavery, teaching people all that mattered was your soul, not your body, and that we should basically not care about the earth or the world or the things of the world. We should only care about spiritual things. Mm. This kind of dualism is developed largely to justify the status quo on earth while people orient people to the end of things spiritually somewhere else off this earth. That this earth is going to hell in a handbasket, so you might, there's no point in investing, in procuring, in reforming, in laboring, in working. And that the system of dispensationalism was initially developed as an apologetic for the status quo in the South over and against um, what was developing in the North, which was largely like a, like, so post-millennialism was developed by these slaveholders, but then these other folks saw it as like license or justification to try and push back on the darkness here on earth. And so post-millennialism is this double-edged sword. It both like was created by slave owners, but then it also like helped eradicate slavery because Mm -hmm. people are going, well, if the church world is supposed to become more and more like the kingdom of God, you know, it's not going to be their slavery. So let's get rid of that thing. And then in response to that, you have this kind of otherworldly oriented perspective. But a lot of that has to do with um, the perspective on the people of God, Israel, and those things. So dispensationalism is the newest. It had a huge influence, especially when mainstream churches and, dis- and seminaries were going uh, abandoning the basic authority of Scripture, the miracles, the, the resurrection of Jesus. They're doing what uh, is called demythologizing, that is taking the miracles out of the text and explaining them by naturalistic terms. So you have these old seminaries like Princeton, Yale, Harvard, which were originally like 
developed and trained to train pastors on how to lead churches, and they ended up embracing basically naturalism, secularism, and interpreting the Bible as just man's experience of God, not God's word to man. And the dispensationalists were holding fast to the authority of Scripture, and they in many ways preserved uh, an orthodox view of Scripture, that it's God's word to man, that to disobey or disbelieve any part of it is disobey or disbelieve God. So the dispensationalists did tremendous good around the turn of the century in holding on to like a conservative view of the Bible, and that's largely where their huge influence came about, like through Dallas Theological Seminary, Talbot Seminary, Moody Bible Institute, those various organizations were bulwarks of authority of Scripture uh, yeah. environments. Great. So that's that's some history. Let's go back to some terms, okay? So uh, now let's talk about the tribulation or the great tribulation. What is that? So John in Revelation 1 tells people, I'm your partner in the tribulation. So there's a sense in which John says the tribulation going on right now. Uh, in the book of Daniel, it talks about how there will be the seven-year tribulation, Daniel chapter 9. Um, and again, seven week. Well, the book of Daniel says seven weeks. Uh, and so... What is it, how do you interpret the weeks in Daniel is a question. Someone interpret it as uh, seven years. Someone interpret it because each day is a year in prophetic stuff. Someone say it's 49 years. Someone say it's other stuff. So this, this idea of the tribulation is this uh, extra pouring out of difficulty upon the world for a period. Uh, the premillennialists uh, would all say that uh, there's a sense in which we're in the tribulation now. This kind of under the thumb of secularism, but there's a sense in which there'll be a future extra difficult period that'll be seven years. Yeah, Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 21, for then there will be a great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. So yeah. it does seem to be this, it's it's referring to this period of intense extra, extra bad trouble and suffering that's going to come in the world. Yeah, and some say that period of intense tribulation is the murder of Jesus on the cross because that happens... It's halfway through the seven hmm. deal, which would put like the earthly ministry of Christ there. Um, some say the tribulation. So, and how to interpret that period is is debated. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's go to another term. Uh, is rapture? You know, a lot of times you're talking about end times. People will talk about the rapture, right? When? What do you think about the rapture? Is there going to be a rapture? When will it be? So, what is what is rapture? So, rapture refers to uh, what Paul talks about in First Thessalonians four. Where it says, uh, this we declare to you as a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, in the voice of an archangel, and the sound of trumpets of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are left alive are caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So the rapture is mostly a reference to that. What does the caught up together to meet him mean? Uh, some people think it's the secret rapture, like the evaporating of God's people from the earth. That'd be the, like the left behind version. Left behind version. Um, so in that in that sense, there's really almost two parts of the second coming. There's like the first part of the second coming of Jesus, which is secret, except for I mean, it's known that in that everybody vanishes who's a follower of Jesus, but you don't actually see him come. He just takes it, people. It dispensationalists has a, in a way have hold the three comings of Christ. There's the incarnation, there's the secret, and then there's the final. Okay. So the secret one is the rapture. Jesus comes and sneaks his people off earth. The third one is when he comes in power and glory to destroy So, so generally speaking, rapture is just referring to the moment when Christ comes back and his people go into the sky to meet him. Yeah, I would say but, that. But when people are talking about the rapture, they're usually talking about it from a dispensational perspective. Yeah. Thinking like, hey, at any moment, we could just be left behind you know we, we could be snatched away and everyone would be left behind yeah think about it like if you talk about an enrapturing experience you know like there's something beautiful and you're kind of have this yeah I, I was just reading that the the term rapture comes from a latin word that means to seize or to snatch or to be carried away right and if you're like having boy this just i was i was enraptured by this concert like i was taken away to another place you know it was yeah, it's, it's like the, when you, like I remember this moment, you know, you're standing at the altar waiting for your wife and she turns the corner, or she's not your wife, she's your fiance, she's about to be your wife. Yeah. She turns the corner and there's uh, like this enrapturing moment yeah. where she comes walking down and there's kind of like this time slows down, uh, it's a really intense experience, like other people fade away, there's like this 
myopic perspective all of a sudden. And so there's a, a rapture, a rapturous moment to be enraptured that our attention will be seized. Well, I think the Bible teaches that literally that there'll be trumpets playing with the loud command, the cry with the voice of an archangel. None of that to me sounds even close to secret. Sounds <laughs> right. pretty public. Yeah. Um, and basically like in the first century, there is this a normal practice where like when a king would go to a city, people would leave the city and go out and welcome him back. So I think that even the meeting the Lord in the air is just more a reference to the, of Christ's ascension. He was up there and he's coming back, but it's saying we will welcome him as we welcome a king, not necessarily like everyone's going to levitate up and then levitate back down. Yeah. But we'll welcome him as a king to his, to his city. So all, all Christianity traditions hold to a rapture, but the, especially in our lingo nowadays because of Left Behind series, people think rapture means the disappearance of the church. Yeah. If anything, the snatching away has to do with the unrighteous into judgment, which I have a paper about that that we can link in the show notes. Yeah. Well, I think that's it in terms of <laughs> the glossary. Um, but I want to talk about a, f- a few more things here. Uh, I feel like, hey, this is an intense thing and uh, it's worth spending some time on. So I, I've been re-looking at our membership document and our statement of faith, right? For someone to be a member here, a covenant member, they have to align and agree with our doctrinal statement. And the last part of that doctrinal statement they have to agree with has to do with restoration, and you could call it the end times. Now, it doesn't say anything about the millennium. It doesn't say anything about the tribulation. It doesn't say anything about your view of the rapture. Um, I don't know if I want to read the whole thing, but it starts with this. We believe in the personal, glorious, and bodily return of our Lord Jesus Christ with his holy angels, at which time he will exercise his role as final judge, and his kingdom will be finally and fully established. It talks about the resurrection. It talks about uh, eternal blessedness and eternal judgment. So everyone has to agree with that. But you could be a member of our church and hold to any of those four understandings of the millennium, right? Possibly. I wanted our membership packet, Article 26, does talk about the, mem- the millennial reign. Uh, it's on the open-handed issues section. Okay. It says... Uh, while we believe the millennial reign to be an open-handed issue, we do not believe that Jesus has already turned, has already returned, which is someone who's like a full preterist. Some people think all of this was fulfilled in AD 70. I didn't even go into that term. Yeah, but. <laughs> so preterism is past, meaning some people interpret, historically some have interpreted Revelation as being fully fulfilled in AD 70, and they would teach that Christ has already returned, which I think is... Malarkey. Nuts. <laughs> okay. Just nuts. So if, if someone believes that, we go, hey, you can't be a member here. If yeah. you think Jesus already returned, you yeah, have you, to believe you have, he's coming. You have no but hope. also that there are two peoples on earth. Yeah, there are two Talk peoples, about that. Two peoples of God. Yeah, that, or that there are two peoples of God. Like we think yeah, that yeah, yeah. The, the only way to God is through Jesus, his death and his resurrection. And so like a classical dispensationalist who would hold that Jews have to do nothing to be safe. They don't have to repent. They don't have to believe. They just have to have a certain ethnic background. Um, we'd say that's that's not the gospel, right? There are like forms of what's well, like really progressive dispensationalism, like either taught by people like Daryl Bach out of Dallas Theological Seminary now that, that could absolutely be members here. I'd imagine that a lot of folks who um, are at our church and are dispensationalists, whether they know it or not, they're probably progressive dispensationalists, not classic. So it is a it is a pretty close so this is me i'm i'm jewish right which i think speaking generally as far as salvation goes counts as nothing right the like when the new testament talks about the jews it's like well they they have the oracles of god so there's like a benefit but having the oracles of god is different than repenting and believing in the oracles of god sure jesus says if you don't know me you don't know my father if you reject me you don't know my father Likewise, in the Revelation, not in Revelation, in Romans chapter 2, there's this question, like, who even is a Jew? Like, uh, and Paul is pretty low on the benefits of ethnic Israel. Uh, here's, here's what he says. Um, he who is physically, so I'll say, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you, will have written the code of circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew, a true Jew, is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. So Paul, the Jew of Jews, Gentile of Gentiles, it, elsewhere he talks about, I'm not boasting in my Judaism, but he's saying someone who's ethnically 
Jewish, someone who's an ethnic descendant of Abraham, that is not a matter of salvation. It's someone who has faith in Christ. And he goes on to say later when he um, writes his, um, basically Galatians 3 is a pretty similar thing what's going on there. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, nor male nor female. You're all in one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So the way that you are part of true ethnic Israel is not by being ethnic Israel, but it's by being in Christ, the one faithful descendant of Abraham. And so God gives the promise to, earlier in, in Galatians 3. He says, God does not give the promise to Abraham to his offsprings, but to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings. That's Galatians 3.16. Promises are made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to his offspring, who is Christ. So the one true Jew is Christ. Right. And to be in Christ by faith is to be part of true Israel. So this whole like question of Israel versus non-Israel, even throughout the Old Testament, in the Greek, when it's referring to Israel assembling together, it's, it's the word church. So some dispensationalists will use the term replacement theology to say, well, some people think that the church replaced Israel. And I think that's absolutely not true. Um, I would say that Israel dwindled down to one faithful Jew who is Christ. And now if you are in Christ, you are Israel. You are the people of God. You are the descendants of Abraham. You are the ones according to the promise of the blessing. And so uh, the technical term for that is supersessionism. Okay. Um, but I think anybody who believes in the death and resurrection of Christ has every claim, the same claim on the promises of God made Abraham as any someone who happens to self-identify as ethnically Jewish, which even that is debatable who those people are because of how oppressed and scattered they've been for a long time. But what you're saying is we're not going to bump into people in the new heavens and the earth, new earth who are like, man, I, I don't know about all this Jesus stuff. I just got in because my DNA. Yeah, no one's going to be there who's like, uh, hey, person on the left, I trust in the finished work of Christ in my behalf. And that person's like, oh, I just got circumcised eight days old. <laughs> right. You know, like that's not, yeah. that's not how it's going to work. Yeah. So um, in making the point that like, hey, you don't have to, I mean, so you, you distinguish the two peoples of God. As long as someone's not embracing that, you could have any of those four views of the millennium and be a member of our church. One of the things that's really interesting to me, Seth, is you actually asked all of our pastors and all of our elders which of those four they hold to. And uh, all of us were either in the historic premillennial uh, place or in the amillennial place. Some, And you asked, how strongly do you believe, right? And some were like, eh, you know, I don't know, 50-50, it's a coin toss. Others were like, no, I feel pretty strongly about it. But no one was in the postmillennial, and no one was in the dispensational premillennial. Um, my guess is if you asked, if you just did the same survey of our church, you'd, you'd definitely have more than zero who would be dispensational. And, and, and maybe people would go, I don't, I don't even know what those terms are. But you go, hey, do you, do you have a left-behind view of the end times? Like, I just think a pretty substantial percentage of our church and the folks listening to this would go, yeah, I think that is probably what shaped my imagination on this. Yeah, there, so there, there, there was a fifth option I gave, which was pan-millennial, which is, eh, who cares, it'll all pan out. Yeah, that, that'd be high. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I bet that would That's be the biggest. That's not a technical term, but yeah. it, is, it is fun. I bet that would be the biggest group at our church. Yeah, but, but my point is there's more people in the dispensational premillennial than you would be or than I would be or than even our pastors would be. So we're going to approach the series from a perspective that I think has the real potential to be frustrating for those folks, especially if they've studied it and gone down that road. And so um, I, I guess it, you've already alluded to it some in terms of the two peoples of God, but like, why are you not a dispensationalist? And again, people can be, you're welcome to be part of our church. It's not like, hey, if you're in that camp, you're like, you're, you're out of here. But, but for you, why are you not a dispensationalist? Uh, there are three big reasons. The first one is what the early church believed about who the carriers of God's promises were. So that's the historic argument, which is they saw no discontinuity between the church and Israel. The, that's the way the book of Acts is written. It's not like it's the, there's one people of God. They're all being folded together into the same household of faith. Okay. Uh, that there's one olive tree that Romans 11 talks about, and unbelieving Jews are out, and believing Gentiles are in. You know, and so it belief is the differentiator, not ethnicity. In even okay. in Romans eleven, which a lot of dispensations appeal to, as an argument for like uh, 
some necessary future inheritance for ethnic Israel. Um, so that's one reason, the way the early church, including the book of Acts, interpreted what was happening at the resurrection of Christ. Uh, two is the text I just talked about, the way that Roman, the way that Paul defines the word Jew, even like the term like Judah, the praiser of Yahweh, that it, Judah is not an eth, it's not a nationality, it's a position of the heart to be mm-hmm. part of Judah, to be a praiser of Yahweh. That if you don't praise Yahweh, it doesn't matter where you're born or who your daddy was. It matters whether you believe in the, Yahweh or not. And Yahweh is Jesus. Yeah. Jesus is the I am. He's the before and the, the end. So that, that Romans 2, uh, the Romans argument Paul's making about who Israel is and the Galatians argument about who Israel is. And, and third is um, I see that the main thing that the book of Revelation is doing is calling the church to task and to faithfulness and anchoring our hope in a future restoration of all things, not necessarily kind of uh, graphing out or charting out the details of those things. So I don't see uh, this um, breaking away of things. And so I grew up with all my pastors being dispensational, and I grew up reading those books, and I grew up hearing the arguments. And I think like when you read the text, not just a revelation. And so this is one of the things that's difficult with revelation, you know, that uh, one of the things um, Eugene Pearson said is like, until you've really gotten a hold of the rest of the scriptures, you can't read revelation. Mm, sure. Which means nobody should ever read revelation. <laughs> like who can ever say I've got a hold of it. Yeah. But when you see the way uh, the promise from Genesis 12 is unfolding through the prophetic in the old Testament, and you see the way that Christ understands himself as the true and final Israel even like the way you read the Gospels, you have Christ being portrayed as like when Israel failed, finally we have a, the faithful Jew who's fulfilling the conditional necessities of the Old Covenant. Because so much of the covenants, they're unconditional in that it was going to happen, but they're conditional in that until you keep the covenant, you won't receive the blessings of the covenant. And only Christ comes and fulfills the covenant stipulations. And so to be in Christ is to be a part of the covenant stipulation for the people, which means that we are righteous in Christ because of his faithfulness. And so those are those are the, the big reasons there. Okay. I, I will say this, that um, in terms of like how I hold that, like that's, I don't think on Sunday we're going to do like a long deal about all those things, but I read a Justin Martyr quote and I read the first half of it and I want to read the second half of it now. Okay. So he says, re- the re- 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 You were going to read the first half again. Yeah. I and others who are right-minded Christians on all points are assured that there will be a resurrection of the dead in a thousand years in Jerusalem. So was, this is a historic premillennial position. So one, he has a view, he holds a view, and he calls it right-minded, meaning the other views are wrong-minded. You know, so that's well, his, that's not how I heard it. Right-minded Christians, right-minded Christians on all like points, Orthodox Christians. Yeah, we are assured that there will be a resurrection of the dead in a thousand years in Jerusalem. However, this is the second half of the quote: many who belong to the pure and pious faith. Our true and our true Christians think otherwise. Okay, yeah, there it is. So yeah, he's. Going, I have a view. I have a perspective, and I think it's right. Yeah, but this is not a test of orthodoxy. Yeah. So especially in the early church, which their main question was, what is the pure and pious Christian faith? What is orthodoxy? You have all these heresies developing all over the place, and Justin Marsh says many people disagree with me, and they're really Christians, mm-hmm. and so post mill, a mill, pre mill various like forms of um, more balanced dispensationalism I think is uh, totally valid. Um, the thing I just like, if folks find themselves really thinking that Jews are saved just because they're Jews, Paul really, really, really disagrees with you. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting even just in the creed, how little time is spent on this. Right. I mean, you, you basically said it already. It's, you know, the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come and you know, the, to judge the living and the dead, right? So it's there's not there's not a lot there. Um, so so tell me this, Seth. I mean, think about someone in our church who holds you know they they've been in a good church that went really in depth on Revelation and came from a dispensational perspective, and you know it, it may not be the wacky stuff you were talking about earlier in terms of like predict the date and you know book the park and you know that sort of thing, but like folks who are going like no, I'm pretty convinced it's like this dispensational premillennial thing and. Um, how are how would you encourage them to engage with this series, knowing that this series is not going to probably go down the roads that they would prefer it to go down? Yeah, first I'd say, uh, just recognize that Luke and I have never been wrong about anything. <laughs> Perfect. So get on board or get off the ship. You know, no, that's like I as I'm teaching this on most of the stuff. I don't want to say this every single. I don't. 
The stuff I'm certain about is this book is meant to inspire faithfulness and say, don't get seduced by the world. I am 100% certain that's what that book is doing. As far as like the details of which illusions going where, the specifics of these things, uh, you're a young man, Luke, and I'm an even younger man. And I'm certain if we taught this book in 20 years, we teach it differently. We're going to teach it this time. And so I would say, please be patient with us as we're navigating where to be certain and where to be uncertain as we're unfolding this stuff. That's one. Uh, two, uh, I really do think what Justin Martyr says is winsome is true. Like, I do not think this is an orthodoxy test. And that's one of the things that I feel like honestly anxious, nervous about is a lot of folks in the dispensationalism camp. It's like either you literally read the Bible like us or you literally don't read the Bible. <laughs> that's like the tone. Yeah. And I don't want to propagate that culture. And if even in this podcast, if I've come across as overly certain about some of the stuff, I just don't. Uh, I tend to sound more certain than I am just by virtue of my personality. <laughs> sure. So, so I want, it's one of the things we love about you, brother. Yeah, so I, I want to I want to just be uh, tedious about that stuff. So uh, I do truly think and think it ought to be long as an open-handed category. Uh, Is there anything you hope they'll be open to possibly reconsidering? Yeah, I hope that the beauty of the symbolism and the pictures that are offered, that you won't see that as us not taking the Bible literally, but it'll be us taking the Bible on its own terms as it's presented to us. So is in the effort to submit to the text, there are some things that I think we ought not take as literal, but take as symbolic. That does not mean they're not true. It just means that they're doing something different, that they're hearkening back to a different Old Testament picture, that they're yeah. inviting us to reconsider these things. And I'd hope you, uh, at a minimum, as you read this book, no matter what, rather than kind of being um, anxious or fussy, and that could be a patronizing term, or even just frustrated, uh, ask yourself the question, like, how is this mobilizing me to faithfulness? That this is not, that God's not trying to just help us predict the future, but help us prepare for it and be a part of it as as God's people. Uh, so I'd, I'd reconsider that. And, and before you even read Revelation, I think the best way to actually nail down your end time is to read the Gospels hmm. and ask the question of who is God's people and how is Jesus speaking to them? And then I think you got to read uh Paul and Paul's and like the whole New Testament is full of end times. Yeah. Revelation is just the symbolic uh, cornerstone of it. Uh, if you really want to get like wet your whistle on the stuff, I think reading Richard Bauckham's book is really good. Uh, I've put together a list of resources and prayers and songs to sing that we can link to in the show notes as well, like our series overview guide. Yep. Uh, and just nobody knows the whole Bible all the way perfectly. Not me, not Luke, and certainly not you. I don't care who you are. So... <laughs> let's, let's yeah let's be curious and open well this won't i'm sure be our last conversation that we have related to the book of revelation especially this fall um but i would like to give you a last word in this conversation any last uh, exhortations or encouragements yeah, don't get seduced by the world <laughs> perfect there you go awesome well thanks everybody for listening uh i know this was a long one um but i think it's a conversation worth having and and what's wild about this seth is i feel like we still just barely scratched the surface um so uh it's gonna be a fun ride some would say this is the beginning of the end of the conversation <laughs> there it is all right everybody well uh thanks for stopping by we'll see you next time <laughs>